Hello, everyone, and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Lisa Burke, a broadcaster based in Luxembourg, and today I'm pleased to bring you a discussion on the topic of COPD, otherwise known as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Now, COPD is the third leading cause of death around the world, and this podcast has been sponsored by Zanoffi and Regeneron. Joining me for today's podcast are Professor Dr. Klaus Vogelmeier and Professor Nicola Hanania, both experts in the field, also Mr. John Linnell, a COPD patient and advocate. Welcome to you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you much. For our audience, a little bit more about you, uh, Professor Dr. Klaus Vogelmeier is the Professor of Medicine and Head of the Department of Pneumology at the University Hospital Marburg. Professor Nick Hanania is Professor of Medicine, Section Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Ben Taub Hospital in Houston, Texas, and Director of the Airways Clinical Research Center, ACRC, at the Bayer College of Medicine. And our patient, John Linnell. John was diagnosed with COPD in 2005 and is a strong advocate for the COPD community. He's also involved with the American Lung Association's ACRC as a patient advocate. So let's dive straight in, looking at the diagnosis and the patient perspective. I'll start with you, Klaus. Uh, give us uh, really a definition of what COPD actually is. Yeah, as as you already mentioned, COPD is an acronym that stands for Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease, and this is one of the uh, very relevant characteristics of the disease. So there is an obstruction of the airways, and this is a chronic obstruction of the airways that is not reversible. But that's not the whole story. In addition to obstruction, there is also destruction. So patients lose lung tissue, and they lose more lung tissue over time. Um, and this then leads to hyperinflation. And the pathologic basis of this is lung emphysema. And can you give us some of the typical signs and symptoms that lead to a diagnosis of COPD? What every patient has is dyspnea on exertion. When they have exacerbations, they will also have dyspnea at rest. Uh, in addition to that, many patients have cough and phlegm. Unfortunately, these symptoms are not specific. And therefore, many diagnoses are made at a late stage or aren't made at all. And so many patients uh, with COPD are not detected as yet. So just to underline that as well, which is something I was going to ask you, it really is diagnosed very late stage, if at all. Uh, turning to you now, Nick, um, what are some of the diagnostic challenges in COPD and the risk factors also? Yeah, well, April, it's it's actually puzzling to know that even though COPD has a major impact on the public health, on the patient, on the healthcare system, it remains undiagnosed in 50% of the population. Uh, we know that from epidemiologic studies. And, and it's obviously maybe due to a couple of factors. One is patient-related factors. You know, COPD is, uh, patients with COPD often don't think they have a problem. Uh, they they grow older, they think their shortness of breath or activity limitation is due to aging. They don't come up to the physician uh, telling them, I have, telling him or her, I have a smoker's cough or I'm activity limited. That's one, uh, is that they come to us late and often we see them more when they get an exacerbation or get hospitalized, which in my mind is too late. 
Second is we as clinicians sometimes don't put this on our radar list. Uh, you know, we don't tend to ask patients who have been exposed to smoke. Anyone who's above 40 may be at risk for COPD, yet we, uh, who smokes, obviously, smoking is not the only risk factor, but at least those are the higher risk. We don't tend to ask the proper questions. Do you have cough? Are you activity limited? Are you short of breath on exercise? Have you cut down your activity? We also don't do perform the right tests. The right test is a spirometry to diagnose this disease. We still rely on physiologic measurement and we spirometry is underutilized in both primary care, even specialty care uh, areas. So, and then there is a system issue that, you know, this disease often can be uh, missed by other diseases that can cause shortness of breath in adults including asthma. Asthma and COPD can coexist, but but many physicians will call it asthma and not real, the real COPD. Other things like heart disease and other uh, problems in the lung may cause similar symptoms. So often it's missed uh, in quite a bit. Now you asked me, April, about risk factors. We Obviously, smoking is the main risk factor for COPD, but it's not the only one. And indeed, you know, secondhand smoke may be also a, uh, a risk factor, as well as pollution exposures. Um, you know, there are some uh, about 20 to 30 percent of COPD patients never smoked. So we have to keep that in mind. And in fact, there's some new terminologies for COPD that are now um, growing in popularity. You know, COPD may be related to in, uh, early infections in the lung, like tuberculosis, for example could be related to, to a genetic deficiency of certain enzymes like alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, but it also could be related to other exposures, as I mentioned, not just uh, smoke. So our rethinking about this whole disease is now allowing us to broaden our aspect in diagnosing more patients, which is the right thing to do, because if we diagnose them early, we can treat them early. Um, but unfortunately, we still have a way to go. Well, thank you. You've mentioned lots of uh, items there, which shows just how complex COPD is when it comes to diagnosis. Let's just zone into one of them. If you are a doctor and you've got a patient coming to you, how does it present differently to asthma, which is one of the factors you mentioned? Well, some of the things that can differentiate COPD from asthma is the onset of the disease. Obviously, asthma usually, but not always, tends to start earlier in the in childhood or, or early adolescence. COPD is rarely seen at age of below 40, although I have some patients who are 35, but rarely you see it in earlier than age 40. Uh, it is usually a late onset disease. Smoking usually is a major risk factor, but as I mentioned, smoking by itself does not need to be there. Uh, physiologically, COPD patients have usually fixed airway obstruction. Uh, asthma usually have more reversible airway obstruction. Uh, the presence of uh, allergic uh, symptoms and triggers usually favors asthma, but I have to admit about 15 to 20% of patients may have uh, coexisting asthma and COPD. And that's where you know the term ACO came on board and ACO is asthma COPD overlap. Uh, but in general, a good history uh, and looking at lung function may be able to differentiate both these diseases. Uh, Management-wise is a bit different in a way uh, where, you know, uh, we'll talk about management later on, but in general, th that is the real importance is why do we need to worry about differentiating asthma from COPD? Because management strategies are different. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you, Nick. Now, turning to you, John, the patient perspective. I know you've been living with a COPD diagnosis since 2005, but before that, how long did it actually take you to get diagnosed? Well, you know, just like the uh, just like the pulmonologist that just spoke to us mentioned, that it is often diagnosed far too late. And for me, I thought I was getting old. I actually said to my primary care physician, you know, doc, it really sucks getting old. And he stopped and looked at me and said, you're 49. That's not old. Let's have a conversation about this. And he knew that I had a smoking history and we had a conversation and he sent me down the hall to get an x-ray. He looked at it and he said, I cannot diagnose COPD from an x-ray, but based on what I see and based on what we've discussed, I would like to send you to a pulmonologist. And within two weeks, I had seen a pulmonologist and through simple spirometry, I was diagnosed with COPD. And I, I think this is very important. Uh, here in uh, the United States, there are approximately 16 million people diagnosed with COPD. As, as Nick mentioned, only half have been diagnosed. There's somewhere around 14 million uh, that have COPD that simply have not yet been diagnosed. And I would put the challenge on that. We, we need to find the missing millions. And I think we can make a great stride to accomplishing that by having general practitioners, PCPs, use spirometry much more in their practices. When I go to a regular doctor visit, they want to know how tall I am. They want to know how much I weigh. They want to take my temperature. They want to take my blood pressure. But what they don't do well, for me, they do because I have, I've been diagnosed, but they routinely do not use spirometry and they really should, especially for smokers. But as mentioned before, it's not only smokers. There's a uh, industrial and workplace exposure to fumes. There are many, many other causes. We need to find the missing millions. I, I think that the fact that I just thought I was getting old too many people think that, and, and the doctors don't catch it, and we need to work better on that because the earlier it is diagnosed, because it is treatable, it's not curable right now, but the hope is it's treatable, and you can live a better life, and the earlier it's diagnosed, the earlier that we can slow the progression. Thank you, John. And uh, so beautifully laid out there. And it sounds like you had a good doctor when you met your doctor, when you thought you were getting old at 49. <laughs> now, yes. let's let's move on to um, how this disease does flow, its course, comorbidity, comorbidity and exacerbation. So, Nick, I'm going to turn to you to tell us a little bit more about the flow of the disease and flare-ups. Yeah, th th thank you, April. Uh, you know, COPD, unfortunately, is a chronic disease, as the name implies. So it's a progressive disease. While we cannot cure it, we can, we can manage it, we can treat it. Unfortunately, there are several events in the course of the disease that makes it worse, not only for the patient, but for, for, for the healthcare system. It increases risk of uh, hospitalization, mortality, and uh, 
And one of them is exacerbation. I call these lung attacks. Uh, pretty much what, what happens with exacerbation is these patients uh, who have uh, daily symptoms become having more, more symptoms. They may have more cough, increasing sputum production. Uh, sometimes these exacerbations are driven by infections uh, and most of the time actually, and they end up needing uh, more and more treatments, including antibiotic steroids. And sometimes, unfortunately, may end up uh, pushing the patient to go to the emergency department or getting hospitalized. Unfortunately, exacerbation is not just the, the, the fact that they occur and we can treat them. It's every time the patient gets an exacerbation, it puts his or her lung function down. In fact, there's been good data now to show repeated exacerbation can contribute to increased risk of worsening exacerbation subsequently, but worsening lung function over a long time. Uh, they don't recuperate lung function, so meaning that every time they get an exacerbation, it puts them down, both the lung function, the quality of life. There's definitely good data to show that repeated exacerbations have been linked to increased mortality and so on. So that's why one of the major goals in managing this disease is try to prevent these lung attacks from occurring. Uh, prevention of exacerbation is a key um, goal in managing this disease. Uh, naturally, exacerbations tend to be more frequent in those patients with more severe disease, but they can occur even in, in moderate COPD as well in some, some situations. So the hope is to really try to minimize those exacerbations because it can have such a detrimental and irreversible effect on the patients. Exactly. Turning to you, Klaus, uh, and thinking about comorbidities, what sort of comorbidities are common and how can they be avoided? Yeah, as we've, we've already heard, uh, COPD is a classical disease of an aging population. Therefore, it's not surprising that uh, COPD patients on average have five or more chronic diagnoses next to COPD. Uh, the most relevant ones are cardiovascular comorbidities um, regarding morbidity and mortality. For example, in, in the German COPD cohort, more than 50% of the COPD patients also have arterial hypertension. Um, second in place and also very relevant are um, depression and anxiety because they may have a very important modifying defect on disease presentation and may lead to a lot of exacerbation events. Um, so comorbidities are very relevant. They need to be diagnosed, at least the most important ones, and they have to be treated adequately. And can you talk us through more non-pharmacological options, which include exercise? Yeah, the first and most important one is that patients remain active. Uh, the reason for that is that we've learned that uh, the level of uh, physical activity is the most important predictor of mortality for COPD patients. How can you achieve that? You may enter a, a sports program in the local area, but it may be necessary that you go into a rehab program um, there are now new developments ongoing, so-called tele-rehabilitation. This uh, evolved during COVID times, and it seems to be very effective for patients that do not have direct access to rehab programs in their area. But without any doubt, that's very important. So putting exercise and movement up there at the top to prolong life. And of course, that's just a general piece of good medical advice. Anyhow, John, listening to um, the medical experts there, what would you add to this? 
initially, my, my first thought is uh, what Klaus said is exactly true. You've got to keep moving. It's a slippery slope. It takes such a short time to become deconditioned. And then you have to work back towards being able to uh, exercise. And it really affects the quality of life. Once I realized that, uh, I know that this is a podcast and you can't see me, but I, I, I wear oxygen. And I decided I did not want to be that old man at home with a hose in his nose. I wanted to own my COPD, be as active as I could, and, and strive to continue being active because that's the way to keep going. And that will affect your quality of life far more. And, you know, speaking of oxygen, I think it's very important that those using oxygen have a conversation with their physician because oxygen is a prescribed medication, even though we all breathe it. But if you have supplemental oxygen, it's a prescription. And if your doctor says you need to be on two liters, that I don't know how to exactly to describe it, but I need far less oxygen when I'm at rest, just sitting here talking to you. But if I were to take my, my dog for a walk for several blocks, I need more oxygen. So I think it's very important for uh, patients using supplemental oxygen to discuss with their physician, being able to turn it up as needed, you know, to titrate it up and then migrate it down as they need. It, it's important to keep your uh, blood oxygen level, uh, I, I would say at 92, but that would be between the, the patient and their doctor. The, the other thing is d depression, anxiety. By, by using purslit breathing, uh, diaphragmatic breathing, and self-calming techniques, mindful awareness. There, there are a variety of things to do, but you can, you can really, if you feel panic coming on, you can often calm it down by telling yourself, okay, it's gonna be okay, John. You've been here before, just breathe, just breathe. And that's much more helpful than immediately going to a medication in just in my non-clinical opinion. Well, non-clinical opinion, but uh, as a patient, a very valuable opinion, nonetheless, <laughs> extremely valuable. Uh, Klaus, turning back to you and thinking now about the current pharmacological options, what are they for COPD patients? What's currently available? First of all, what's very important to mention here is that the drugs and the treatments that we have are better than many healthcare professionals believe. We can improve symptoms, we can reduce exacerbation rates. And in certain patient groups, we may even be able to uh, reduce mortality. So what do we have? We have, first of all, and this is the basis of treatment, is the use of bronchodilators, long-acting bronchodilators, typically as a combination of a long-acting beta agonist and a long-acting anticholinergic. If patients have exacerbations under such a treatment, you may add an ICS. Uh, you can use so-called fixed triple treatments that have all three components in particular in individuals that have um, a higher blood eosinophil count. So that's, these are the most important drugs that we use uh, for CPD treatment nowadays. And then thinking about COPD and the subdivisions that were mentioned by Nick earlier in this conversation, do you think that will lead to a more targeted approach in treatment? 
Without any doubt. We are now starting to characterize patients more carefully. We have to get to a better understanding what patients will will profit from what kind of treatment. This is just at the starting point from my perspective. I mean, what we already know is that patients that exacerbate need a different treatment compared to patients that do not exacerbate. But there is still a lot to learn, and uh, only if we can characterize patients more carefully, and we also uh, have to identify the so-called treatable traits. So we have to look for features that may have therapeutic consequences. And when we think about the challenges of an aging population, what are the current advantages and disadvantages of inhaler therapy? Yeah, that's a very important issue. You know, this, these are no pills. Patients have to inhale these drugs. And this, of course, is complex. Uh, many patients have problems to use inhalers. They make many mistakes that then may affect the efficacy of, of the drugs. And therefore, it's very important to choose the right inhaler for the right patient and then to, uh, to instruct the patients how to use these inhalers. Uh, and this with the background of multimorbidity and polypharmacy. So this is all not, all of that is not very easy to do, but I think we have to do it to, to get to better results. Nick, would you like to add anything to that on the management of treatment uh, and unmet needs? Yeah, I mean, it's beautifully said uh, by Klaus. I think our approach to this old disease has changed knowing that it has multiple what we call phenotypes but also not only that but we have identified multiple mechanism of the disease so we no longer look at it as a one one size fits all disease and so therefore it's very important for clinician to do some really dig, digging deep in the history to identify these phenotypes whether it's a frequent exacerbator phenotype whether it's a chronic bronchitic phenotype whether it's a, it, it emphysema, uh, mainly phenotype, uh, but now we use biomarkers like blood eosinophils and maybe more to come, including radiologic biomarkers in the future may help us subdivide this group of patients so that we can do a more personalized approach. And I think it's it's very exciting time for COPD. So we have moved from this blue bloater, pink puffer type approach to now having multiple uh, as I mentioned, subtypes or phenotypes and including uh, the identifying more mechanisms so that we have more targeted approach to this disease. And hopefully that will help improve outcomes in the future. Obviously, that's the main goal is to, 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 to move that um, increased risk of mortality that we have seen in COPD while we have seen so much achievement with other diseases in COPD. Unfortunately, we haven't moved that uh, that envelope uh, a lot. So I think we're hoping with new approaches, we may uh, improve outcomes. Thank you so much. And John, I'd like to leave the final word to you and really with a view on smoking. There's a growing number of patients with COPD and most cases are largely attributed to smoking as was previously said. What are your experiences of smoking cessation programs? Oh, I, I certainly have my opinion, but for those that smoke, everyone's going to stop in a different way. And this is purely my opinion, but I think people stop smoking when they have that aha moment. Some will quit 
when they're immediately diagnosed with COPD because that that scares them enough into to smoking cessation. My opinion is most people don't. They need uh, that first major hospitalization because of an acute exacerbation. That they need an event to happen that that will make them quit smoking. And I, I don't, uh, when I quit, I, I learned a lot. I, I learned that I needed to pick a date. I, I needed to pick a, 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 a crutch, whether it's a, a nicotine lozenges or gum, or in my case, it was a, it was a pharmacological uh, a drug. Uh, you also need to choose something to, to do when you get the urge, walk the dog, do a crossword puzzle, and you you need a hand to mouth substitute, whether it's a stir stick, a straw, a toothpick, uh, hard candy, but just something to replace the hand to mouth. And all of those things together, along with family and friends support, and what helped me a lot, and I, I really think this will help a lot of people since we're in a, uh, a social media uh, type uh, of our lives, to find a group online and pick a quit partner. I did that. And when, so I had someone I could commiserate with and say, oh, this is a hard day to get through. And I would help he, and and he would help me. And we got through it together. All of those things. I, I don't know the answer overall, but that that's what I did. But Smoking cessation is the single most important thing a patient can do for themselves. The second most important thing is exercise and staying active. Thank you, John. And thank you, Klaus and Nick, for all of your words of wisdom. So to sum up then, there seems to be new and very effective treatments for certain patients on the horizon to be used in collaboration with holistic treatment of patient. But one major goal remains to make the diagnosis earlier. And so that concludes today's discussion. Thank you so much to Professor Dr. Klaus Vogelmeier and Dr. Nick Hanania for their expertise, plus the testimony of John Linnell. If you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. So until next time, take care and goodbye for now.